Yes. Yep. Yeah, we'll be going through. Whoops. We'll be going through the rest of uh, psychological disorders today, and then uh, Friday. I'm sorry, Wednesday. We'll talk about um, therapy, therapies. Dan, yes. It would be a good idea. I'm not sure if that's on the exam or not, but um, I would say it's pretty likely to be because um, it's one of the more common uh, and very disturbing uh, psychological disorders. Yeah, yeah. The most common uh, of the disorders that you'll encounter uh, in general are the mood disorders. Um, somewhere between, I think it's 15, somewhere between 15 and 25 percent of people will have a mood disorder at some point in their life. Uh, and the mood disorders include uh, major depressive disorder, uh, which is also known as unipolar depression, uh, bipolar disorder, which used to be called uh, uh, manic depressive illness and um, wait that's it right those are the mood disorders yeah um, and second probably the second most common will would be the anxiety disorders and uh, you know I don't think PTSD is, uh, I don't think it's classed as a mood disorder, but it might be. It's not in the DSM-IV. Uh, it's classed separately in the DSM-IV. But that's going to be, PTSD is, uh, is and is going to continue to be a huge problem in uh, combat veterans coming back from the war in Iraq. Um, yep. So the axis of uh, probably that won't be so important. Um, the uh, five ax, the axial, what's called the multi-axial system in the DSM. Um, and the reason, the only real benefit to the multi-axial system is that it gets clinicians to think more broadly about a patient's experience uh, rather than focusing only on the clinical psychological issues, but also the medical issues and general life functioning and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Okay. Um, so we talked last time a little bit about the medical model of uh, you know applying the medical model to psychological disorders, implying that we have this ability to classify symptoms into a diagnosis, the ability to understand what kinds of treatments work well for that 
set of symptoms, which is classed into the diagnosis. And then ultimately, uh, we would want to use the medical model to help uh, produce a cure for the disorders. There really, uh, there really are very few psychological disorders, if any, I can't really think of any, uh, that have what we might consider a cure. Um, mostly at this point, we're in the treatment modality. But uh, in order to, to sort of come up with a cure, one of the things we have to do is find out what the cause of the disorders is. And one of the reasons that it's so difficult to, to develop cures for psychological disorders is because they don't exist just in one area of your life. The cause for them is so complex that it's really difficult to, um, to really find a cure. And the reason that we think about this as a complex cause is that when we look at the prevalence of disorders, we can't say that um, everything is caused, for example, by your biology. So we can't say that uh, if you have the genetic predisposition, let's say, to develop schizophrenia, that is, um, you know, you've got a, a, a parent with schizophrenia or a, a, a sibling with schizophrenia or a child with schizophrenia, we can't say that you're definitely going to develop schizophrenia. Um, because in addition to biology, we also, the development of schizophrenia is going to involve social aspects. So pressures exerted by society, uh, peer pressure in adolescence, for example, uh, the roles that we take on in society and the expectations that we're given because of those roles, right? And then uh, in addition to that, some people deal better with those social roles and expectations. That is, they have better coping mechanisms. So the psychological aspects, um, how they uh, subjectively experience stress. Some people get really stressed out by things and other people are relatively calm, right? Uh, some people um, have different ways of learning how to uh, respond to these things. <coughs> and so uh, all three of these, this is considered what's known as the biopsychosocial model because we start out with the idea that, yes, there are some biological underpinnings for a lot of these disorders. We know, for example, that uh, schizophrenia has a high genetic component. Um, the, your genetics is a big part of whether you're going to develop schizophrenia or not. Uh, but we also know from studies of twins that you know, you've got one twin that'll develop schizophrenia, one twin that doesn't. So what's the difference? The rest of that difference is environment. So what is it about the environment or about the individual that's going to affect how they develop uh, schizophrenia? Um, the second most common biologically predisposed, genetically predisposed disorder is bipolar disorder. Um, and bipolar disorder has just about as high of a genetic predisposition as does schizophrenia. Um, so this brings up a lot of difficult questions. So 
one of the things that we're uh, that we were talking about in abnormal psychology, we read a memoir by a psychiatrist named K. Redfield Jameson called An Unquiet Mind. And in this memoir, um, one of the things she really talks about is, uh, should she have children? Um, you know, is it fair for her to have a child knowing that she has this genetic possibility of passing this disorder onto her child um, the way yeah the way that her parents uh, you know pass this genetic predisposition on to her and so it makes it really difficult for her to um, you know to consider what are the implications of that uh, you know doesn't mean that her child is definitely going to develop bipolar disorder but the likelihood is is increased because of the genetic predisposition so um, so I just want to give you a sense of how complex these causes are, these causes are, and how little we really understand about the causes of these disorders. So finding a cure is going to be really difficult because you need that cause. You need something really <coughs> profoundly powerful in a causal relationship in order to treat it in a curative way. Um, So what we're going to do uh, today, mostly, is go through some of the specific disorders and talk a little bit about uh, each of these disorders. Um, as I said, the mood disorders and anxiety disorders are going to be the two that you're most likely to run into in other people or in yourself. Uh, and then the dissociative disorders and schizophrenia are relatively rare, about 1%. Of people. I think I might not even talk about dissociative disorders today. We'll see if I have time. Uh, and so about 1% of people uh, will develop either uh, a dissociative disorder or uh, a schizophrenia disorder. And then personality disorders are quite a bit more common, uh, but um, I'm not sure how much we're going to talk about those today. We'll see how far we get. Are there any other disorders that you're interested in that I don't have listed here? Eating disorders? Did you want me to talk about that? I can. Um, no, no. It is its own separate classification in the DSM. Uh, it has some, it shares some characteristics with um, obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, it also shares some characteristics with dissociative disorder. Uh, and it has some, it has a little bit of an overlap with the anxiety disorders. So it really kind of fits. Um, it, it, it has, it's sort of uh, multi-layered. It's a very complex disorder, yeah. Where does Asperger's fall? Asperger's is in uh, what are called the pervasive uh, developmental disorders. Uh, Asperger's is a mild form, milder form of autism. It's, uh, when we talk about autism, we don't talk about 
just autism. We call it Um, uh, yeah, autistic spectrum disorders, meaning that uh, somebody isn't just autistic or not autistic. There are ranges of autism. And uh, over here, a very, uh, a very serious uh, form of autism, uh, and then at the other end of the spectrum is a relatively mild form of autism, Asperger's. Uh, if we have time today, I'll, uh, I can play a uh, little video clip of a couple of people with Asperger's, um, yeah. give you a sense of that. What's that? Yeah. If you're really interested in that, in that read um, The Elephant in the Playroom. Yeah. Uh, Chris is doing her um, final project in abnormal on uh, uh, pervasive developmental disorders. Yeah. Uh, mental retardation is also one of the pervasive developmental disorders, and Down syndrome is considered one of them too. Um, any others you want me to talk about here? See if I, I, you know, I might pull out um, personality disorders and substitute eating disorders. Talk to you a little bit about that. Okay, so let's talk first about mood disorders again because they're going to be among the most common of the disorders. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, the personality disorders really have been around since uh, Freud started uh, psychoanalysis. Okay. Um, the official classification, I don't know what version of the DSM they appeared in. Um, there's a controversial uh, diagnosis called borderline personality disorder. And uh, I know that this has been around since the 1960s, 1970s, but I don't know, I think since the 70s. Uh, but I don't know when the classificate, when the diagnosis first started being developed for the personality disorders. I, I'm just not. What is the point of calling someone's personality disorder? Okay. Um, this is. Yeah, well, let's let's get to that when we get to personality disorders. Since you're interested, I'll go through that. Yeah, yeah, we might have to cut out something else, but we'll see what happens. Uh, any other uh, disorders you want to go through in any more detail? Will you be talking about phobias? Um, I hadn't planned to. 
although they're part of the uh, anxiety disorders, so I may actually have that covered, but I'll see if I can't do that, yeah. Anything else? Phobias. Okay, so the mood disorders, um, there's a term for feeling sad, and it's called dysthymia. Um, and uh, when you feel sad, feeling sad is normal. Everybody will feel sad at some point. Uh, feeling sad becomes a problem when it goes on and on and on and on, or it becomes extremely intense and starts to have effects on your uh, body and your social functioning and your occupational functioning, your interpersonal functioning. So there's uh, a term for long-term dysthymia, uh, which is called dysthymic disorder, um, which requires that you have this long-term sad feeling uh, for two years or more. Most of what we think of when we talk about uh, mood disorders is major depressive uh, disorder. Uh, and I gave you the um, symptoms, I gave you a slide with all the symptoms for, the major, for a major depressive episode. And the major depressive disorder requires that you have that um, major depressive episode at least once in your life. And if you have multiple major depressive episodes, it requires that there be at least two months in between episodes. Okay. So if you have a major depressive episode and then a month later you have another one, and a month later you have another one, uh, that's all considered one major depressive episode. Okay. Whoops, what happened there? Um, women are about twice as likely to be diagnosed with a major depressive episode or major depression as uh, men are. That's un it's unclear whether that's uh, actually a diagnostic reality, that is that uh, twice as many women have the disorder, or whether it's an artifact of, the f of what we've established, which is men in general tend to seek help less uh, for disorders. So it may be that fewer men are going to be diagnosed rather than uh, that there is actually a bigger uh, percentage of women who have the disorder. Um, the primary feature of major depressive episode is a feeling of worthlessness. And it's hard to describe this. It's a feeling like, I don't know why, um, I don't know why I bother going on. Um, nobody will care if I'm not here. Um, my life really doesn't have any point, any meaning, any worth. I don't really contribute anything to other people's lives. Um, this is more than just being sad. This is a feeling of um, really emptiness, ego disintegration and emptiness, um, that you, your sense of self is so degraded that uh, you really don't have any sense of meaning and worth. The other common feature that we see in people with uh, depression are eating and sleeping disruptions. So uh, 
and that'll be either people uh, stop eating, they don't eat enough, or they eat too much. And similarly with sleep, they can have insomnia, they don't sleep enough, they can't sleep enough, or what's called hypersomnia, which is basically that they sleep too much or oftentimes will sleep all the time. Um, the other, one of the other key features is things that people used to think were really fun aren't fun anymore. Things that people used to really enjoy doing, they're just not enjoyable anymore. Um, you know, I really enjoy going out with my friends, but I just don't have the energy anymore to go out with my friends. Uh, I don't care so much now about roasting coffee. I'll just buy Starbucks or I'll just go down to Dunkin' Donuts. And if you like coffee as much as I do, that would be a huge loss. Okay. Um, suicidal thoughts, that is thinking about suicide, thinking about death, uh, planning suicide even worse, uh, or actually attempting suicide uh, is uh, another of the important symptoms of uh, major depressive disorder. Now, the interesting thing about suicide is that uh, women are much more likely to attempt suicide. I think they're about three times, I think their attempts are about three times men. Is that, do you remember if that's right, Chris? Something like that. Um, so they're more likely to attempt suicide, but men are more likely to succeed when they do attempt. Uh, that's an inter, they're <laughs> stubborn. That's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting question. Why is that? Um, one of the um, thoughts about that is that, uh, and it's documented by evidence, men tend to choose more violent and more likely to succeed methods, whereas women tend to choose less violent um, and less likely to succeed methods. Uh, now, why women choose those less violent methods is unclear. One of the thoughts is that, um, uh, based on the responses of women who have, who have survived, is that uh, they, didn't, they tend to choose methods that don't result in causing other people distress. That is, they tend to choose methods that um, aren't going to leave a big mess for someone to clean up or isn't going to be you know, gory and bloody and awful, right? So, um, so there may be more you know, these people, even though they're so depressed and they're so wrapped up in their own suffering that they have to choose suicide, that it appears that they still have some thoughts about other people and the consequences of their suicide, so. Um, there are a couple of blips in terms of suicidal uh, behavior. One is in late adolescence. We tend to see an increase in the number, a percentage of adolescents who uh, attempt suicide. And then uh, there's a decrease in middle life and then another uh, blip later in life um, when people are elderly. Other questions? Disorders, I mean uh, symptoms.
Um, the other side of the coin from major depressive disorder is what's called mania. And uh, mania is characterized by uh, an excessive sense of impulsivity, people um, engaging in impulsive behaviors, um, oftentimes include sexual promiscuity and uh, feelings of grandiosity. So um, I feel like I'm the smartest person or the best business person or the best salesman. Um, and this is a really incredibly uh, consuming sense of grandiosity. It's not like, well, you know, I've, uh, I've got some awards and I feel like I'm a pretty good athlete or something. This is, um, every, they are the best at everything, right? It's really hard to imagine. Sure, sure. Uh, that's okay. Uh, spending sprees. Um, people will spend a lot of money uh, in a uh, state of mania. They will go out and buy things. But they don't just buy a lot of different things. They might buy a lot of one thing because they, you know, they might need to instead of buying one. CD, they need to buy the whole catalog of the company or the artist, all the artists' CDs. Um, and so they'll spend, you know, basically as much money as they have uh, in these spending sprees or go into debt worse, worse than that. Um, now, if you at some point in your life have experienced mania and then experienced depression, it's not two separate things anymore. Now it's a disorder called bipolar disorder. So bipolar disorder requires an alternation of mania and depression. But it also could be one major depressive episode and one manic episode could be, uh, would qualify for diagnosis for bipolar disorder. But typically people with bipolar disorder will have alternations of mania and then deep depression. So you, you can probably imagine how disturbing it is to be you know manic one week and then a week or two later be in the depths of depression and ready to kill yourself, right? And is there a huge fluctuation of it, uh, it depends on the... Oftentimes they are, yeah, they don't have the memories aren't compartmentalized. You remember when you were like that, yeah. Now, uh, depends on the, what, how this depression and mania, what form it takes, is gonna depend on, uh, there's a couple of subtypes of uh, bipolar disorder. Type one bipolar disorder, the main symptom is mania, okay? So you have the strongest, most intense symptom is mania. Then you have uh, what's called dysthymia along with mania. So a relatively mild form of depression, okay? That, and that's relative, that doesn't mean that it's not severe, uh, but it's relatively mild compared to the deep depression that's associated with major depressive disorder.
Uh, type 2 depression, its primary symptom is intense major depressive disorder with a milder form of mania, what's called hypomania. Okay. So your spending sprees might mean you don't spend all the money in your account, but you go through quite a bit of it. Um, you don't buy uh, every color of that shoe, but you buy several pairs, right? Um, so it's, um, it's a difficult uh, disorder to, um, to diagnose, and all of these disorders, here's the deal. Beware of what's called medical student syndrome. Um, this is what happens when medical students start learning about disorders and they start learning about the diagnostic features of the disorders. All of a sudden you start seeing every disorder you study in yourself or in someone around you. So um, the information you're going to get from the textbook isn't sufficient for diagnosing any of these disorders. So um, yes, especially self-diagnosis. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so if, but if you read these symptoms and you feel like you or someone you know may qualify, it's worthwhile talking to a professional a psychiatrist or a psychologist. Okay. Any other questions on the mood disorders? So basic classification, major depressive, disorder, major depressive episode, and mania. And so if you encounter an episode of mania at some point in your life, um, you're looking at bipolar disorder. And in bipolar disorder, you have that alternation between the um, major depressive disorder and uh, mania. You can have a single episode of mania. Um, it's still, I think it's still classified under bipolar disorder. Um, there's a, a couple of diagnoses, one for single episode and then one for recurrent. So, But that's more than you need to know for this class. Anxiety disorders. Um, probably the most, let's see, would this, I think this would be the most common, especially in women, uh, generalized anxiety disorder. Generalized anxiety disorder is sometimes referred to as what you might call free-floating anxiety. It's free-floating because you can't really attach it to any cause. It just kind of floats out there. You just feel kind of anxious and worried a lot of the time. You don't have any particular reason to be, but um, your autonomic nervous system is always kind of cranked up. Sympathetic system's going like crazy, right? Um, about Two-thirds of people that are diagnosed with GAD are women, so it's more common among women. Uh, and usually it starts to appear either in childhood or during adolescence. You'll see this commonly among the disorders. Um, it's, it's relatively common for these disorders to appear during adolescence. Um, and one thought about that is that Adolescence is a time of intense stress before you've really developed effective coping mechanisms for that stress. So um, you might have that biological predisposition. You go through adolescence. Your body and uh, your emotions and your psychology is under all this intense stress. 
um, you may not effectively be able to cope, and the disorders may emerge as a product of that. There's also an evolutionary explanation uh, for why that occurs, which is that uh, evolutionarily in our past, um, by the time you were in adolescence, you typically were, uh, had reproduced, especially if these disorders emerge in late adolescence. So they may not have been weeded out sort of by genetic um, processes. Generalized anxiety disorder, even though you don't have um, an identifiable cause for your anxiety, it typically is associated with the perception that there are threats in your environment. Okay, So you tend to see your environment as somewhat threatening. Yeah. Um, um, and it may be a product of the... Um, of the overactivation of the autonomic nervous system, but um, you tend to be more vigilant. You're looking out for, for problems or things that are out of place or things that are unusual, and you'll pick up on those things right away. Yeah. And, and what can happen, what that can wind up leading to in interpersonal relationships is um, you may misinterpret uh, individuals' behavior as threatening or disturbing more readily than you might uh, if you didn't have generalized anxiety disorder. Yeah. Phobias. Phobias. So what do you think of when I say phobias? Spiders. Fear of spiders, right. Something, yeah, generally, some, when someone is afraid, yeah, yeah. It could be for a reason, it could be um, uh, an unidentifiable reason, yeah. Um, when we have a particular reason for what we're afraid of, we call that a specific phobia, okay? So I might be afraid of spiders. I might be afraid of blood or body parts. Uh, I might be afraid of heights, which is not uncommon. I might even be afraid of wind um, or beards, oddly enough. Uh, clowns, fear of clowns is um, actually not that uncommon. You know, it's funny, um, I was reading a study in, the, in a British medical journal, and it had to do with fear of clowns. Uh, not fear of clowns. It had to do with um, the experience of children in hospitals. And it's not uncommon for hospitals to bring clowns into the hospital ward for children that are chronically ill and spending a lot of time there. And the thought is, well, the clowns will come in and they'll entertain the children and everybody will be happy. And uh, nobody had apparently ever bothered to survey the children about how they felt about the clowns. And it turns out that they are pretty universally hated among children in hospitals. Which is a really strange, you know, like nobody ever thought that like children might not like the clowns. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. Could be, yeah. <laughs> or just, you know, um, who knows? Yeah, yeah. Or maybe, you know, it could be that, you know, maybe they think, well, uh, this is an obvious attempt at manipulating my feelings, and I'm not going to go for it. Who knows? 
It could be, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it could be a, an association, a learned association, sure. Um, second type of phobia is known as social phobias. And social phobias are essentially um, about being afraid of being judged. So someone with a social phobia, for example, would have a really difficult time being a teacher, where I have to stand up in front of you know, 30 or 40 people every day and uh, talk about something I know about, right? Um, giving speeches is oftentimes a problem. Even just going out uh, in public, you know, being in a public square or in a bus or something like that, you have this kind of just fear that people are watching you and judging you and thinking badly of you, right? And it, again, this is not just, yeah, I get on the bus and I'm a little bit anxious about the nerdy clothes that I have on. This is like, it's a consuming fear. And remember that with all these disorders, we don't really start talking about them as disorders until they start causing problems in occupational, um, social, or interpersonal functioning. So if my job is to be in front of people and talk in public, and I'm afraid of that, that's going to be a problem. If, on the other hand, I have a job that doesn't require me to do that that much, and it's not interfer interfering with my, you know, just going out and being social with people, it's not interfering with my interpersonal relations, probably not so much of a problem, right? So again, when we think about these disorders, we think not only about the symptoms, but also about the frequency that those symptoms occur and the intensity of those symptoms. How intense is it in terms of your experience? What's that? Frequency, intensity, and duration, how long it goes on for, yeah. Um, a third type of the anxiety disorders it's w is what's known as a panic disorder. Now, a lot of us have probably had panic attacks. Uh, I had one about uh, four years ago, and it was when I started a new job and I was learning the, I was learning the uh, job, and I, the job was I, was, I was teaching, and one of the parts of the job was I had to advise students about what classes to take. So at that job, the instructors, the faculty, were also academic advisors. Here, we have separate academic advisors, which is nice, because I don't have to worry about that. But. So this is something I'd never done before, and I was, it was like the person who was training me was another faculty member, and she was whipping through the screens, and I was asking questions, and you know, she's you know, switching over and asking the students questions, and I just became all very overwhelming. So I decided to go home for lunch. Had my lunch, suddenly started to feel incredibly like nauseous, um, headachey, um, uh, and then started like thinking, oh, oh, uh, I gotta get out of here. I can't, I can't stay here. Um, I can't do this job. And I started thinking, well, it's a good thing that I haven't unpacked all my stuff yet, because now I can pack real easy and, and, and move somewhere else. So like, I don't know where I was going to go, you know. So, um, and I had this really overwhelming panic. Uh, and basically, I had to put myself to bed uh, for about, uh, I went to bed and I slept for about three hours, got up, still felt kind of anxious and not quite right. Um, and I remember having to tell myself, okay, Dana, keep it together. It's like I was going to lose it, right? 
I was just going out of my mind. So that's a panic attack, right? Oftentimes you'll have increased heart rate, increased respiration. You'll feel like you're having a, a heart attack. You'll get that same kind of pain in your arm uh, that you'll get with a heart attack. Uh, and um, having one panic attack is not a problem. When they start to recur, and more importantly, um, you start to be afraid of when the next panic attack is going to come. And that fear starts to consume your thoughts, right? Um, that's what's going to di differentiate a di panic disorder from a panic attack. It's that intense fear of having another attack. And that's, uh, that's what makes it worse. Usually, the um, panic attack symptoms will peak within about 10 minutes, and then they'll gradually get um, less uh, over time. Um, so these things tend to come on really quickly and then fade away. But again, the issue with the panic disorder is having that overwhelming fear that you're going to have another attack, and it's going to be worse, and you'll die next time. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not uncommon. You may not know what is triggering it, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes they'll just come out of nowhere. Yeah. But again, having a panic attack is different from that intense fear in between the attacks that's going to um, cause disruptions in your functioning. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this is called, um, this is the term you'll see, it's uh, comorbid, or comorbidity. And uh, to mean something is comorbid when it occurs simultaneously. So uh, you might, for example, have simultaneously generalized anxiety disorder, this free-floating anxiety, and a specific disorder, okay, a, a specific phobia, I'm sorry. And so, um, so you might have this generalized anxiety, but then you have certain things that set you into a, a, a specific phobia. So um, comorbidity, um, the most common comorbid disorders uh, are a mood disorder and an anxiety disorder, uh, for example or a substance use disorder, and another psychological disorder like schizophrenia. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To where I'm uh, more aware and I'm, I'm learning things. I've found that that anxiety at times has triggered me to want to self-medicate to get my body to level 
out because I'm in, and it, and it sounds so simple, the generalizing anxiety thing, but it's just this constant state of uptightness mm -hmm. and inability. I mean, it can almost be, look like, AD, you know, it, like you can't concentrate. Mm -hmm. just, mm -hmm. You cannot sit down and sit through a program and everything's got to be, you know, organized. Everything's out of control. I just know it is. And, and, and everybody's looking at the house thinking, you know. And it Looks fine like, to me, yeah. It can look like OCD. <laughs> I mean, it can look like these other, all sure. these other things. But I have really, really struggled with, you know. And then after having the, the substance abuse history and going in and saying, I think I need some help here. And being treated like, you're a drug addict. We know you're in here. And, and basically being said, told, well, we, we know that you want a heavy dose tranquilizer. And, and, and I don't even know what I need or what, <laughs> I, what I want. You know what I mean? I only know of a couple kinds of drugs. And I know That's terrible. Really well, and I yeah. know. And, and, you know, and, and I see that happen a lot with other sure. girls that I know that are in, you know, sure. recovery. Um, and are they going to general practice doctors or actual psychiatrists? Well... I think a psychiatrist would be able to see the difference, exactly. but general practice doctors sometimes exactly. can't. Exactly, and that's yeah. where I'm on my way to now. Good. They, you know, I, I didn't know until I read some of the stuff in the book, you know, I, I've struggled with these bad headaches that I first thought were migraines, and I was going in, and, and again, they're thinking, I want pain medication. I'm like, people, I'm losing my vision here. I can't see. I'm having a headache right now. But anyway, it's like all in here. And, Tension, yeah. And uh, finally, they figured out, you know, you're yeah. And then as I am reading the book, you know, probably started a couple of years ago where I started having this issue with excessive sweating. What's going on? <laughs> all the it, it's so true, like all these symptoms go together and mm -hmm. it's just like well, what do you what do you, you don't want to you don't want to make a doctor's well what do you need to be seen for? Well excessive sweating, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't even know these things are symptoms. Yeah. So uh, one of the treatments, by the way, for uh, tension headaches that's uh, shown some efficacy is uh, biofeedback. The same thing we did here in the lab uh, is basically they hook up, instead of hooking up uh, an EKG reading to monitor your heart rate, what they'll do is they'll hook up EMG um, electrodes to measure the tension in your muscles and you actively work on reducing that tension and you know finding the mechanisms to relax and relax that tension and let it drain out and um, uh, that's sometimes very useful uh, you know because once you learn those techniques when you feel that tension coming on you use the same kinds of techniques to reduce it yeah uh, now uh, you bring up an, an important point is that oftentimes the disturbance that we feel psychologically uh, can be medicated. You know, we, you happen to find a really effective way to undo this, um, and that was with, um, you know, illegal drugs or, um, or even, uh, uh, you know, prescription painkillers that may take away that, at least the feeling of it, an alcohol. And so what we see in, for example, uh, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, is high rates of, uh, of alcoholism. And the thought is that that's a, a method of uh, self-medicating uh, for, um, uh, for the disorder. Uh, and that's why we see in oftentimes this comorbidity of substance use disorders with other uh, psychological disorders. But what, what will oftentimes happen is once you've developed that substance use disorder, now it's difficult to 
disentangle that from the psychological disorder because the substance use disorder then takes on a life of its own. So you can't just say, well, I'll substitute alcohol with benzodiazepines because you'll still be craving the alcohol. It's got its own, um, it's got its own triggers. It's got its own consequences that are desirable. Um, and even though you're taking benzodiazepines for the anxiety disorder, you still want the alcohol. Or you start substituting the um, addiction to the benzos, but um, that's less common, yeah. Yeah. But with, but I mean, there's also a big difference between a general anxiety disorder, like phobias, these things that um, you can identify and that they're, they're very psychological, whereas it seems like major depressive disorder and mania are actually like something more biological. Perhaps. Yeah. So, so what we'll see when we talk about therapies, what we'll see is um, that oftentimes medication is useful for uh, undoing the symptoms of these disorders. But uh, by itself, medication doesn't typically address the underlying causes, what we think of as the causes. And so uh, we don't, when we look at the eff efficacy of medication, for example, for depression, we look at the eff efficacy of medication uh, and psychotherapy, we see each is about the same but when we combine them, then we get this synergistic effect that actually results in better outcomes. But as I said, we'll talk more about that when we talk about therapies. Yeah. Um, last uh, of the anxiety disorders we'll talk about is um, obsessive compulsive disorder. And uh, it's known as OCD. And OCD involves two primary symptoms. One is obsessions. And obsessions are an, uh, 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 uncontrollable thoughts, thoughts that just come into your mind without, any, without you being able to stop them. Um, and so this obsessive kind of thinking is a very cognitive experience. But OCD also is characterized by compulsions. So behaviors that are uncontrollable. Now, here's the deal. What's important about OCD is that the people who are, and this is, that makes it different from delusional behavior, delusional disorders, the people who are engaging in OCD behaviors and thinking are well aware that what they're thinking, what they're doing is uh, very irrational and doesn't make any sense and they don't want to do it. But if they don't do the behavior, they don't get rid of the anxiety, right? And the thoughts persist. This obsessional thinking persists until they can finally do it, until they f can finally engage in the behavior, until they can finally uh, 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 complete the task that they have to complete. And what will happen commonly <coughs> is the compulsions take the form of um, uh, repetitive behaviors. 
So you have to do something a certain number of times. That's what's called a counting ritual. Um, so you might have to check the locks and make sure you locked the door. But checking it once and going back to bed isn't going to do it. Uh, every time you do it, you have to do it five times. Okay. And if you get interrupted in the fourth time, you have to start over and do it five times again. So as you can imagine, this can be incredibly time-consuming and incredibly disruptive to someone's functioning. Um, it might be to the point where you can't get out of the house and go to work because you're involved in these rituals and they keep getting interrupted and, um, and the obsessive thoughts keep you from concentrating on work. So um, this is a very serious disorder. Uh, and uh, fortunately, though, we have some, uh, some pretty good treatments for OCD. Um, why don't we take a break here? It's about noon. Uh, come back at 10 after. I've got a brief video clip of OCD stuff, and then uh, we'll pick up after that. Uh, no, I don't believe I did. Thank you. Right. Well, you should know. You studied it, so. Yeah, you know, flooding works for some people. Um, generally, so uh, what I'll do uh, at this point, I'd like to show you a brief uh, video clip of a couple of women who have OCD. And I like this clip because uh, they're both quite articulate, and they articulate the experience of OCD really well. Uh, they're both, um, they've both in, been in uh, therapy for quite some time, and so they have a good perspective on the disorder and a good perspective on, uh, on overcoming it. What's that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, let's see what you think about this. Make sure the sound's up. Yep. Obsessive compulsive disorder is an anxiety disorder that affects about 1% of the population. The symptoms of this disorder include recurrent response, repetitive, often ritualistic behaviors, and the presence of marked anxiety surrounding thoughts and actions. Although most people experience some obsessions and compulsions, these behaviors are considered abnormal only when they cannot be controlled and when they significantly reduce the quality of a person's life. Laura and Marla are longtime friends who have both suffered from obsessive compulsive disorder since adolescence. Although both women live relatively normal lives, their disorder interferes in significant ways. For example, Simple actions such as filing an important paper can set off a spiral of compulsive behaviors. These behaviors can become highly ritualized and can occupy an entire day. When I was in school, I would walk down the halls and I would be looking at other people and I thought, they're not, they don't have this in their brain. They're not. I mean, it was just, it's, they weren't obsessing. I was completely aware. 
I wanted to be like them for a minute, to have some relief. I just thought I was completely weird. In, in high school, I would <laughs> spend a, a, a four or five minutes putting on mascara and like each little lash. Why am I doing this? I would say to myself, this is weird. None of my other friends take this long to put on mascara. I have two major OCD things. Um, and the major one would be like checking either paperwork, um, clothing tags, or zippers. The other one that I hate the most, that really you know brings shame you know inside of me or whatever, um, is the, the picking of the scabs, the obsessively picking and repicking and repicking scabs. And that's that's the most painful for me. On a bad day with my OCD. I wouldn't be able to figure out what to wear. Oh. Would be running around, and then um, I'd be sweating a lot because I'd be getting nervous because I'm running late. Um, and then I wouldn't be able to find the particular paperwork that I needed to take to an important meeting that day. Because what I'll do is I'll, I'll put it away. And then uh, the, the urge, and you can feel it. It's almost like a a, yeah. a surge that you have to. We've actually never talked about this this particular aspect, but it's like a surge. Oh, I gotta check. I gotta see. Is is that other insurance paper behind there? And what's behind that? And 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 what's behind that? And what's in the other little? You know how dividers in a like a you know portable file kind of thing. And so I just end up checking all of it. And you know, um, in my worst days, several years back, I would check. Uh, I have to cut the tags off my clothes because I'll check. Oh, made in Korea. Oh, and, and it's a large. And um, I know brand names for zippers because I um, did I ever tell you about I zipper one? Yeah, <laughs> you know all the tags. Yalon, Y A L O N, the Yalon company. Um, so things like that. Um, okay, but I what I would do is like. I'd have to feel, see right now I'm wanting to like feel the ledge. I'd have to like feel it and go, okay, there's a ledge. Okay, where's the ledge? There's a ledge, okay. And this is all like in my mind kind of thing. And, and the one that's in my pillow, I would lift it up and down and up and down and up and down. People with obsessive compulsive disorder often become obsessed by unpleasant or inappropriate thoughts. As you will see in this segment, for example, they might think about harming someone they love, and when they are unable to purge this idea from their mind, they become highly distressed. Furthermore, they might feel driven to perform a ritualistic act, such as hand washing or counting, in order to avert some perceived threat. As is typical of people with OCD, both Laura and Marna are keenly aware that their obsessions are irrational and counterproductive. Still, they have great difficulty controlling their obsessive thoughts and behaviors. On a bad day, uh, on my worst, one of my worst days, I was up all night, so seven or eight hours, trying <laughs> to figure out what to wear. And I was aware that this was happening, and it, it was frustrating, it was, um, it was sad. And I didn't know how I was going to get out of that. But I, I had to figure it out. So, but that's seven or eight hours. And then I was exhausted. Mm -hmm. And then I had to go to school. So, and I 
I knew that it was going to affect my whole next day. But what do you do? I mean, I, I just couldn't, couldn't figure it out. So, so that's that's seminary hours ruminating on that. And you had yeah, maybe it wasn't quite seminary hours, but it, 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 it was so. I think it, you know, one night it, it was um, it was about ten or so, and I just felt compelled to look at all the tags on my shirts, and I'm sitting there looking, and I kept saying to myself, go to bed, Laura, go to bed, and instead I just would check the tags, and I finally, maybe about like 2.30 or so, so like four and a half, five hours later, I just was like, oh, must go to bed, and finally made it, but I was so mad at myself, and, and I'm so, it's embarrassing, and I think, you know, normal people don't do this, you know. I try not to go grocery shopping anymore. I avoid it at all costs. Okay, so I go, I'm going to the produce aisle and I'm getting some celery. And which bunch do you, do you take? And um, if there are people around, then it creates more anxiety. So I'm, I'm carefully, I'm looking at each bunch and I know, you know, okay, that one's not going to do it. And um, So then I have to, I, I might... I might pick it up. Okay, I might find a bench that I like, pick it up, put it in the grocery cart, and <clears throat> walk down, and I know that's not the one that I want. So I'll just kind of strategically, okay, as soon as that customer goes down to the next aisle, I'll go back and get that other bench that I thought, yeah, that's the better bench. Sometimes I just have this compelling urge to step on the gas and just, just go. And um, then if a pedestrian is crossing, Pedestrians crossing the street, and I will have this compelling urge to to run them over. And uh, I mean, I've never done that. And I learned that if you get into a situation like that, you can just put the car in neutral, and that will help. And I have done that um, at times because I just don't want to deal with uh, with the urge or the the fear of actually running them over. Um, I've been walking down the street with a friend and felt the urge to just push him into traffic. And so uh, I thought, you know, let's just go over on the other block, walk, walk down the other street. So, and um, I, I don't think that I would ever do it, but I have the thought, nevertheless, and it's disturbing. During the 1990s, researchers made great strides in developing treatments for people with OCD today. A combination of behavior therapy and medications can reduce obsessive-compulsive symptoms in nearly 60% of those who suffer from this condition. In the final segment, Laura and Marna discuss some of the techniques they have learned in therapy which help them cope with their OCD. They also discuss their hope for a future when they can be free from both obsessions and compulsions. <laughs> Wait. 
after about 15, 20 minutes, especially like half hour, the urge is either gone or it's much less. I mean, literally, in the last couple of weeks, I'm, I hope and pray that I'm finally conquering this after like eight years. Because I, I didn't start out doing that. I now she has told me at least four times that she's conquered <laughs> So as you can imagine, uh, OCD can be really disruptive for people's lives, yeah? Obsessive thoughts, which typically the most common uh, forms tend to be having to do with germs or contamination, and the obsessive uh, behaviors generally occur in um, counting rituals, but they can occur in um, just a duration. They have to do something for a specific duration. Now, um, an individual. Uh, most commonly, if someone exercises excessively, that is, they exercise, um, you know, more than most people would under any given condition. You know, if they're if they're an athlete training for a triathlon, they're going to be doing a lot of exercise. But if they're hold on a second, but if they're just, um, you know, if they're just going through daily life uh, and they're exercising, say, two three hours a day, um, generally um, that's more indicative of an eating disorder of the non-purging variety, but um, it could be, um, and we'll talk about that, uh, we'll talk about eating disorders, but uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I guess, like, I'm, I was thinking about my dad, because I mean, he's not an athlete, he's 62 years old, and he, like, just got in the wonderful machine, and after, like, a week, was doing 26 miles, like, oh. once, and just, like, like, wouldn't stop, he would, like, do five miles at once, get off, cool off, and then, like, go again, and then hmm. he got to the point where he would do it so much, and he ended up hurting himself, and he was still doing it. That's and a problem. Like, he also, like, like, he has a lot of guns, and he's just always cleaning them, and he goes shooting a lot, but he'll clean them, like, five times a day. Mm-hmm. Well, again, uh, you know, that could be someone who just enjoys doing those things, and uh, 
exercise can itself be very reinforcing. Um, if, however, it's causing him some uh, problems in functioning, um, for example, he, you know, he can't work, or he, you know, has trouble socializing, or, you know, he people, yeah. So people are having, you know, people are saying, "How come you're always, you know, you don't talk to us anymore? You don't, you know, that's that's a problem." Yeah. Um, now, uh, just compulsive behavior by itself doesn't qualify as OCD. You have to have the obsessive thinking too. But compulsive behavior uh, problems can occur for a variety of reasons. And so it might be worthwhile um, talking to a professional about it. Yeah. Yeah, so is there an acute version versus a chronic version? I don't know how long it specifies that the um, behavior has to persist for. I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, because they can be reinforcing. So, um, it, you, know, um, you know, people can get into those patterns of behavior, yeah. Um, so wouldn't the cross-stitching sort of become a ritual? Uh, it might. Uh, it could be, you know, one of the compulsive behaviors. Uh, but again, you have to look at, um, you know, how intense is it? Um, does it cause her problems in functioning or does it actually help her? You know, so you could say, you know, going, you have, if you have to go to a therapist twice a week, well, that's some sort of compulsive behavior, but um, if it's provide, you know, if it's not, if it's reduce, if it's increasing her functionality and not reducing her quality of life, then we start saying, well, that's not a problem. It's a, it's a solution, right? Um, as opposed to, for generalized anxiety disorder, someone who does substance abuse, and that then becomes its own problem and that that's not a functional solution it's a dysfunctional solution right yeah yeah uh, um, for OCD uh, it's generally a combination of medication and then psychotherapy uh, but we'll talk more about that when we talk about therapies yeah okay so um, Let's talk a little bit about post-traumatic stress disorder. We probably won't finish up disorders today. We'll stretch it into, uh, uh, into Wednesday. Uh, PTSD uh, is important to talk about because, as I said, uh, as more and more soldiers are coming back from the Iraq War and more and more soldiers are surviving things that soldiers wouldn't have in the past, this is an interesting phenomenon in this war. We're getting many more soldiers coming back with severe injuries, both physical and emotional, um, that otherwise would have died in the battlefield or in the hospital in the battlefield. But we've got much better medical treatments now that are keeping these soldiers alive. So we're starting to see a lot more uh, problems with functionality when, when those soldiers are returning with their uh, with their injuries, which is a good, you know, it's a good thing that they're returning with their injuries, but we need to also have the uh, infrastructure in place to help them take care of those uh, problems when they uh, come up. 
Um, PTSD typically occurs uh, in um, individuals who have been through some sort of extraordinarily traumatic event. And most commonly the triggers are um, natural disasters, um, combat situations, rape, um, and uh, PTSD uh, involves basically memories that come back to you, uh, un, you know, unwanted memories that'll come back in situations that they're not useful. Uh, oftentimes extreme nightmares while someone's sleeping at night and then um, a sense of anxiety, uh, almost like a generalized anxiety disorder kind of anxiety, um, a sense of hypervigilance about their uh, environment, okay? And so uh, PTSD um, one of the one of the main uh, symptoms is basically insomnia. So people with PTSD will oftentimes have a real hard time sleeping. And as you can imagine, if you're not sleeping, that's going to cause problems with your work. It's going to cause problems with your social functioning. Your interpersonal functioning is going to be disrupted because of irritability. Um, oftentimes, uh, concentration problems. So people have trouble focusing and concentrating on a particular task. And uh, and it can become very um, intense and very consuming. And one of the ways that people will deal with this experience sometimes is through, uh, is through the idea of self-medication. So using alcohol, um, using uh, marijuana, using drugs uh, to try to control these symptoms, or at least to become unaware of them if they're happening. So uh, high rates of alcoholism, for example, among uh, PTSD uh, soldiers with PTSD that came back from Vietnam. Okay. Um, now, here's the deal. Not everybody who goes through combat, rape, or, um, you know, a terrorist incident or a... Um, or a natural disaster is going to have PTSD. So uh, what's, uh, what's interesting is that some people not only don't develop PTSD, but they actually develop better functioning after the event. And so this is what my, uh, uh, the advisor that I worked with at UBC likes to call post-traumatic stress reorder rather than disorder. And so uh, what he did is he looked at survivors of the Holocaust. And so uh, these are, you know, Jewish individuals living, I think, in Canada and the United States. And he, met, he, he compared their functionality, you know, their um, productivity, their life circumstances to age-matched uh, Jews who hadn't been through the Holocaust. So basically, same age, same kinds of historical experiences, except the Holocaust is the main difference. And what he found is that the trauma survivors not only had a high level of resilience, they, um, most of them, 
for the you know the vast majority of them didn't develop PTSD symptoms but in addition to that he also found that they tended to have even uh, better uh, they tended to have more optimistic outlooks. They tended to have uh, better function in their lives. They had, tended to have a greater sense of meaning in their lives. And so, um, so these traumatic events aren't always uh, just filled with PTSD. They're, the results of them can actually uh, be quite different. So it's important to notice that just because you have the same experience doesn't mean you're going to develop this disorder. Again, think of that biopsychosocial model. Some people have better psychological mechanisms for coping with that stress than others, right? So it's going to um, be very much on an individual basis who's going to develop PTSD and who isn't. Um, questions on that? On PTSD? One of the problems that soldiers are talking about coming back from Iraq is uh, that if you're diagnosed with PTSD, you'll receive a medical discharge from the military. Uh, if you're diagnosed with something like a personality disorder, uh, you don't. And so what's happening is um, they're, get, they're getting a diagnosis of something other than PTSD when the symptoms are clearly in line with PTSD. So um, there's some problems in the, in the systems of um, reintegrating soldiers uh, from Iraq. In addition, a lot of the soldiers that are coming back from Iraq are National Guard units, and the National Guard units haven't historically had to deal with the reintegration issues of people who have been through extreme combat. Um, you don't see the world the same anymore. You don't see yourself the same anymore. You don't see other people the same anymore. And, you know, National Guard units have historically been used in domestic situations, typically um, disasters. And they haven't had to face the kinds of things that the career military have in uh, combat situations. And so they haven't developed the same kinds of programs to help soldiers reintegrate. Uh, but I think that's changing now as we're getting more and more of them back. Um, but those programs are really important to try to take the person from the role of, you know, the, the trained killer to becoming a citizen again, which is a whole different uh, ballgame. So uh, don't underestimate the uh, power of that experience for people. Okay. Um, I'll just talk briefly about dissociative disorders. Um, dissociative disorders, the main characteristic of a dissociative disorder is that the person feels somehow um, disassociated from themselves. Okay? So it may be that they feel dissociated from their body, but more likely they, they don't feel as if their mind is entirely them. You know, their mind all of a sudden becomes separate from them. Or maybe you have multiple minds all at once. And so dissociative disorders, as you can imagine, are really disruptive. Um, dissociative amnesia uh, is a case where someone loses all memory for who they are. Um, 
And what will sometimes happen is uh, they'll lose memory of who they are in the process, and in the process they will travel to some other place and they won't know who they are. They may start an entirely new identity if they can't find out who they were before. Uh, frequently what will happen is after a week or two they will recover the memory of who they are. Uh, but sometimes it'll go on and on. Uh, there's a case, for example, of a fellow from Olympia who was traveling to his mother's house in Canada and um, he never got there and he woke up on the sidewalk about six weeks later in, De in Denver, didn't know who he was, where he was, how he had gotten there uh, and to my knowledge still hasn't recovered that um, identity. And so essentially what he has to do now is he has to build his own new identity, you know, find out who he is, what he likes, you know, who his family was. He has to go meet his family. He has to, he was, he was engaged. He had to come and meet his fiance, right? And, you know, they wound up getting back together and, but there was no guarantee that, you know, he would have liked her um, in this new identity. So you, you have to appreciate how incredibly disruptive this is. Incredibly rare. Um, dissociative amnesia itself is rare. Fugue states, which is where someone travels uh, in a dissociative amnesia, is uh, even more rare than that. So I don't talk too much about these things. Dissociative identity disorder, even more rare than dissociative amnesia, is a condition where someone has multiple identities simultaneously. And what will typically happen is they will you'll have this kind of uh, consciousness of being one identity and then suddenly switch to another identity. And sometimes you have memories that cross over between the identities, uh, but sometimes the memories are compartmentalized. So uh, in one identity, you might have some experiences and form some memories that you can't recover in the other identity. So um, again, as you can imagine, that's going to be a real problem. Plus, the people who are talking to you, we have, you know, we have, it's hard to imagine this because we have this continuous stream of consciousness that we call reality, right? And um, if you can possibly imagine that, you know, someone you're living with or married to uh, will all of a sudden change into someone else without their control or without your control, um, that's going to be disruptive and that's going to, someone's going to have a hard time functioning. This is a controversial diagnosis because the diagnoses will occur oftentimes in sort of clusters. So uh, in the 1970s, I think, there was a cluster of dissociative identity disorder diagnoses. And so mostly what's thought is, and it came from a relatively small number of psychiatrists, so it's thought that they were not necessarily all of them uh, valid diagnoses, but um, it's a bizarre experience. And what it tells us is how, um, how the, the normal consciousness that we take for granted isn't necessarily reality. You know, these people have a very different reality. You know, we could, under any other kind of circumstances, might have a reality like theirs. So. Um, it's also important to tell you that this is not schizophrenia. So you will hear sometimes 
someone on TV or in the newspaper, they'll say something like, um, uh, uh, you know, one minute I'm like one person and the next minute, or one minute he's like one person and the next minute he's like another. It's a very, he's a very schizophrenic. No, schizophrenia is entirely different um, and we'll talk about why that is later. Um, but just be aware that in common language, people will confuse multiple personality disorder or with schizophrenia. Um, okay. I think we have time for this. Let's talk about personality disorders. Um, Antisocial personality disorder uh, is probably the most, one of the most common of the uh, personality disorders and also one of the uh, most disturbing. Sometimes these people are called sociopaths. Um, sometimes they're called psychopaths. Uh, these are people who um, are usually men, although some women do have uh, antisocial personality disorder. And the main feature is that they have an absolute lack of regret or conscience for the damage that they do in other people's lives. So these are oftentimes criminals. Um, and they can be very impulsive. So they don't necessarily have control of their behaviors. So when they get angry, you know, and they smash somebody in the head with a hammer, um, that's a very impulsive action. Most of us, when we stop being angry, will go, oh my God, I'm so sorry I did that. Uh, people with antisocial personality disorder go, deserved it, right? So, um, so it's, it's an intense lack of any kind of conscience or uh, regret. Hold on a second. Um, there is some evidence that there may be a genetic predisposition uh, for personality disorders, uh, uh, for um, antisocial personality disorder. Um, we tend to see these same kinds of behaviors run uh, in families, but the extent of it isn't very well known. Uh, yeah, Lauren, did you have a question? Yeah, well, I was going to ask one if it was genetic. Yeah. Um, Uh huh. Most violent crime. Property crimes, I think, are about equal um, men and women. Yeah. Um, um, another personality disorder I'll tell you about. These are the two probably that. Uh, uh, psychologists know the most about is borderline personality disorder. And you may have heard of this um, term, borderline. Um, the borderline personality disorder um, is uh, predominantly, predominantly occurs in women or is diagnosed in women. About three quarters of those that are diagnosed are women. Um, and uh, almost Almost inevitably, those people uh, will be suicidal 
at some point uh, in life. Um, they, one of the key characteristics of someone with borderline personality disorder is intense instability. And the instability happens in um, multiple domains. So for example, their interpersonal relationships may be very volatile, right? Um, you know, they'll love you intensely one minute and then they'll hate you intensely the next, right? What's that? Sounds like my ex-girlfriend. Sounds, like, sounds like my ex-girlfriend, yes. Uh, <laughs> woo, not going there. Um, the emotions are very unstable. Again, intense fluctuations of emotion and um, real intense problems with impulse control. So um, they have a hard time controlling the impulse to lash out, for example, or even to lavish you with uh, praise or gifts or something. What's that? Um, yeah. and. Uh, and sometimes uh, spending is involved with borderline personality disorder. Um, I have a, another video clip for this, but we don't have time to run it today. Um, why don't we pick this up on uh, Wednesday?